What's happening, Hume Lake? How y'all doing today? You have a decent Thursday or what? Very nice. I mean, I don't know about you guys. Are you guys like so sick of all the fresh air? Ugh, I'm so over it. Just kidding. Uh, how many of you think you're going to have nightmares about those puppets? Are you worried about that at all? I'm pretty sure there's some decent, uh, some decent fodder for lawsuit material if you would just talk to your parents about that. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 6. What you have seen represented on the screens tonight, the narrative that has happened in our Trasher Island video is found uh, in its original form in Daniel chapter 6. And for some of you, that's probably a really familiar story. For others of you, it maybe is the first time you're hearing anything about it. What we see in Daniel chapter 6 is a story that sometimes is referred to as uh, Daniel and the lion's den. What we've seen represented as rabid puppets on the screen for Darlene, we see in scripture uh, as a den of lions that the Babylonians kept. Actually, the Medes and the Persians kept at that point. Let me catch you up, because if you're paying attention, you may notice that we're skipping Daniel chapter 5, and we're not... We're not saying that there isn't valuable stuff in there, but for the sake of the time we have this week and the sake of what we want to talk about tonight, I can give you a quick summary of Daniel chapter 5. Essentially, what we get in Daniel chapter 5 is the turnover of two different rulers, right? So after Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 5 tells us that his son Belshazzar became king. And you would think Belshazzar would have learned all the lessons that his father had to learn the hard way, that he would have said, you know, I've seen all these things my father had to go through, and so I'm going to follow God faithfully. That's not what happens at all. In Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar is throwing this wild party and he's using the sacred objects from the Hebrew temple. There's writing on the wall. You may have heard that before. A disembodied hand appears in the midst of their party and writes on the wall and basically declares that the kingdom is going to be taken away from Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, and it's going to be given to their enemies, the Medes and the Persians, who by the end of Daniel chapter 5 overthrow the kingdom, kill Belshazzar, and then there's a new ruler that steps into place who's represented by the dude with the eye patch on this video. I didn't catch his name. But the new king, as we see him in, in uh, Daniel chapter 6, his name is Darius. We're going to take Daniel chapter 6 in two different sections. We'll talk a little bit about the first section tomorrow. But tonight, let me just catch you up to where we are, even in the video. What we see in Daniel chapter 6 is that Darius appoints Daniel to be one of the key leaders in all of the country, right? He's one of the top leaders underneath Darius. Even though he'd been taken as a captive, he's proven himself in wisdom and stature and honor and integrity and all those things. So he's got this high level. But the other leaders from all kinds of different places, some of them also captives themselves, are jealous of his power. And they decide they want to take him out, but what they discover is that there's nothing they can pin on him, right? Because he is such a man of honesty, he is such a man of integrity, he is such a faithful and loyal man that they can't find anything to condemn him of except his faith. It says that literally in Daniel 6. If we're going to trap him, the only thing we'll be able to trap him for is that he's really faithful to his God. So let's get something on him there. They go to Darius, they say... Hey, don't you think it'd be a good idea? Because you're such a great king, Darius, nobody else should be praying to anybody other than you, right? You're the one who can tell them what they need to know. Darius says, yeah, that makes sense. He signs a law into official decree that says no one can pray to anyone other than to him. But he's not really thinking about Daniel at the time. As soon as the law has been ratified, they catch Daniel praying as he does all the time. He's faithful in prayer. They arrest him. And when Darius finds out, it says that Darius is grieved. We'll talk about that a little bit more tomorrow night as well. But Darius can't overthrow the law because of the way their government works. And so he is required to cast one of his top officials and a person he cares dearly about 
into the lion's den. Darius throws Daniel into the lion's den, and it shows in the text that he's grieved by that. And then what we go on to see, and we'll look at this in just a second, is we see an incredible rescue. We see God come to Daniel's rescue in the midst of the, the lion's den. I don't know if you've ever had like a, an older brother stand up for you when bullies were after you. If you've ever had a friend that kind of took your side in an argument or whatever, it feels really great when somebody comes to the rescue, right? No matter what circumstance you're in, that's a great feeling. When you're feeling like you're in jeopardy or you're feeling like you're in danger and somebody stands up for you, there's nothing like that. I remember when I was in kindergarten, uh, one day I come home from kindergarten and my mom kind of does the regular thing. She goes, uh, she goes, how was your day at school? And I said, it was fine. You know, we, uh, we got there early. We did the Pledge of Allegiance. Like we heard a story. Uh, we had a little bit of a craft time. We went out for recess. We came back in. Uh, we heard another story. We worked on some workbook pages. We did another craft. The teacher slapped me. We went outside. Then we had another nap. And, and my mom's like, wait, hold on. What? What did you say? And I was like, we had two craft times? And she's like, no, the other thing. And I was like, the teacher slapped me? And she's like, what do you mean the teacher slapped you? And I was like, oh, yeah, the teacher slapped me because the vacuum was broken. And she goes, that doesn't make any sense, Darren. Like, what are you talking about? I'm like five years old at the time. She's like, what do you mean? And I said, well, so after we did our craft, all the kids had a different job. They had to do a different chore. And my chore was putting away the vacuum cleaner. And I tried to put it away, but it was broken. And so the teacher slapped me in the face. And my mom's like, again, that doesn't make any sense. What are you talking about? And so I described it to her. Basically what happened is this. In my classroom in kindergarten, we had what's called an upright vacuum. You probably have an upright vacuum in your house. They're very common now. Uh, the way you put an upright vacuum cord away is that you wrap the cord around two hooks. There's one at the top and one at the bottom. You've probably seen that. And you wrap the cord around and around. But in my house, and this would have been in 1979, right, long time ago, in my house we had what's called a canister vac. You don't see those very much anymore. But it was a little box on wheels with a long hose that comes out of it. And the way you put the cord away on a canister vacuum it has a little rewinding spool. So you just pull on the cord a little bit, dink, dink, like that, and it goes, and it sucks it back in like the dogs on Lady and the Tramp, right? You know what I'm talking about? It sucks back in. As a kindergartner, my teacher, after craft time, she gives all the different assignments. You kids clean the tables. You kids put away the scissors. Darren, I want you to put away the vacuum. So I went over to our vacuum cleaner in my kindergarten classroom, and I grabbed the cable, and I went, dink, dink. I pulled on the cord. Nothing happened. So I said the vacuum cleaner was broke to myself. And when my teacher came over, she said, why didn't you put the vacuum away? I said, because it's busted. And she said, Darren, we just used the vacuum. It definitely isn't broken. Now put it away. So she walks off. I grab the cord again, just like I've done 100 times at home. Think, think. I pull the cord. I'm expecting it to retract inside the vacuum. It doesn't do anything. It's obviously broken. She comes back, and she says, why haven't you put the vacuum away? And I said, teacher, I already told you I can't put the vacuum away because it's broken. And she says, and I told you that it isn't broken. We just used it, and I don't want any more back talk from you, young man. So put the vacuum away, right? I'm like, all right. So she leaves. I grab the cable a third time. Think, 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 think. I'm trying to get it to go in. Think, think, it won't work, right? She comes back over a third time. She says, why don't you put the vacuum away? I've told you multiple times. And I said, I told you it's broken. And she slapped me in the face, right? I was like, well, and then she put it away. So I told my mom that story, and she wasn't too happy, but I thought that was the end of it. You know, I thought that was the end of it. I go to, I go to kindergarten the next day, and the weirdest thing happens. Uh, we get to class. We sit down at our desk. We do the Pledge of Allegiance like we do every day, and then there's a knock on the door. And I watch Mr. Rogers all the time. I just thought it was the mailman, right? I was excited. And so uh, my, my teacher goes over to the door, and she opens the door to my kindergarten classroom. You guys aren't going to believe this. Guess who's there? It's my mom. 
And what's even weirder, my mom has brought our vacuum from our house, like the vacuum from our house. She's holding it. She looks my teacher dead in the eyes. She doesn't say a word. She just walks into the classroom, right? My friends are like, is your mom going to vacuum our school? I'm like, I don't know. She walks over to my teacher's desk, and she sets the vacuum down. She's looking my teacher in the eye. She still hasn't spoken a word. She hasn't said anything. She hasn't even blinked. And slowly, she starts to pull the cord out of the canister vacuum. And she pulls it out until it's fully extended. And then when it's fully extended, again, she hasn't said anything. She's looking at my teacher, and she reaches out, and she goes, think, think. And he goes, back into the vacuum. And then she goes, boom. And she slapped my kindergarten teacher across the face. Yeah. Now, uh, that noise that you just made is exactly the noise all my friends in kindergarten made. It was like the end of Hoosiers or whatever. They're like, yeah, you know, Braveheart. Uh, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't great for me later that my mom had a good right hook, but it was cool for me that day. You know what I'm saying? And uh, these days, I mean, that happened in the, in the late 70s. These days, if that happened, my mom would get sued, the teacher would get sued, everybody would be sued. It'd just be a big drama. But I will tell you that for a moment, as a five-year-old, I loved the fact that I had a mom who came to my defense. I loved the fact that I had a mom who came to my rescue. Like, that stuck with me. It's still with me today. That my mom didn't let that thing sit the way it was, but she came and did what she could to fix it, even though I, we could argue that maybe the way she fixed it wasn't the best, right? Daniel gets put into the lion's den, and God doesn't leave him there. If you've opened your Bible now to Daniel chapter 6, look with me at verse 16. This is after Darius has discovered that Daniel has broken the law and that he can't change it. It says this in Daniel 6, 16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. I want you to notice with me how desperate this foreign king is. This pagan king who doesn't know Daniel's God, who doesn't actually care about Daniel's religion, but who cares deeply about Daniel. We'll come back to that tomorrow. I want you to see the affection that this foreign person feels for this ambassador of the kingdom of God. At break of day, verse 19, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel calls out from the den. Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. In Daniel chapter 6, much like what we saw in Daniel chapter 3, God comes to the rescue. God comes to the rescue of his faithful servants in this moment when the story, once again, would have been just as cool if Daniel had been faithful and then had died for what he believed. But God chose in this particular moment to rescue him. Now, we've talked all week about the fact that the way for us to live as ambassadors is to recognize 
that we can know God and we can know what God has said, but we don't always know what God will do. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said that to Nebuchadnezzar. We know who God is and he has the power to deliver us and we know what he has said. We cannot worship false idols, but we don't know if we're going to live or die in your furnace is essentially what they say. One of the things you want to be really careful of when you're reading Daniel chapter 6, especially if you're a young person, it's the first time you're seeing some of these texts. The interpretation that you don't want to take is that God is always going to get you out of trouble. Because it could look to you, if you just looked at Daniel 3 and just looked at Daniel 6, like, hey, whatever comes your way, if you're a follower of God, it's always going to turn out good, right? It's always going to be sunshine and rainbows. People are going to come after you, but they won't be able to hurt you. Well, the history of the ambassadors of Christ over centuries now proves that that isn't true. While God is always who he says he is, and God's word always remains true, the followers of God have not been able to faithfully predict what God will do in any circumstance. And there are plenty of people who are followers of Jesus over the ages who have died for their faith, who have not been spared from lions, who have not been spared from torture, who have not been spared from illness, who have not been spared from persecution. That kind of persecution is even happening today. So what you don't want to do interpretively is go, oh, well, I should follow God because if I follow God, then every time I'm in a bind, he'll get me out of it. That isn't true. There are times where God rescues his servants, and there are lots of stories like these. This is a beautiful story of God's rescue. But the reality is that the right thing for an ambassador of God to do is to follow him whether he gets you out of the lion's den or not. The right thing to do is to follow him whether he gets you out of the furnace or not because the other two things never changed. Who he is has remained the same and what he has said remains the same. The only variable is what he will do and you and I can't predict that. Now that might seem like kind of a discouraging message to you, right? You might be like, oh, that's kind of a downer, right? You mean I could follow Jesus and get in trouble? I could follow Jesus and lose my life? I could follow Jesus and lose all my property or lose all my possessions or whatever? Yeah, yeah, all that stuff could happen. But, but there's one other thing I don't want you to miss as we look at the rescue of God in Daniel chapter 6. While we can't predict what God will do today or what he'll do tomorrow, we can worship and celebrate what God has certainly accomplished in the past. Okay, stick with me for a second. I don't know how your next year's school is going to go. I don't know what's going to happen with your parents' marriage. I don't know whether you're going to overcome your cancer diagnosis or whatever. I don't know what God will do in your particular situation tomorrow because I'm just a dude like you. But what I do know with 100% certainty is what Jesus did when he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. So while you can't necessarily know how he will choose to interpret events in the days ahead, you can rest in the truth of what he has accomplished some 2,000 years ago. And you might be like, what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. Last night we talked about sin. Remember that? And when we were talking about sin, we established the idea that for some people, their picture of sin is that it's just like these big heinous crimes. But we went one step further to say the way the Bible describes it is that you and I, and we heard this again tonight, you and I were built to glorify God. That from the ground up, you and I are built to worship him in our thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes. And yet, despite the fact that that's the reason for which we were built... You and I fall short of that goal. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, which is our purpose. The Bible goes on to say in Romans chapter 6, and we talked about this last night, that every sinner is destined to be punished for that sin, separated from God, rendered spiritually dead. 
The Bible says that if you're a sinner, you're spiritually dead and separated from God because he's holy, right? And the problem with spiritual death is not just that you're, that you're separated from God right now, but someday your body's going to quit. And that might be in a year, it might be in 80 years, but someday my body's going to quit working. My lungs are going to stop breathing for one reason or another. Someday I'm going to die and so will you. And when that happens, if I'm spiritually dead in that moment, because of my sin, if I'm separated from God, check this, the Bible teaches that I go into eternity forever and ever and ever and ever stuck like that, stuck in spiritual death, separated from God and existing eternally, separated from God in a place called hell, right? That's the consequence of sin. Now, if this is the first time you're hearing that, you're probably like, this is pretty heavy, right? This isn't like a thing I like hearing. Guess what? It's not necessarily a thing I like declaring, right? But it is a biblical truth. It's a truth that's in the Bible that all men and women, everyone who's ever lived, was created to glorify God. We've all failed to do that. And the consequence of that sin is spiritual death now and eternal spiritual death when we die. And if that doesn't sound great to you, let me give you some good news. It didn't sound great to God either. In fact, the Bible says that God desires that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. In the same way that Darius wished he could overturn the law because he loved Daniel, there is a part of God that desires that no one would go to hell, that no one would be spiritually dead, that no one would be a sinner. And yet God is holy and just, and he cannot set the guilty free. He cannot compromise his own integrity and his own character, and he must uphold the law. So what God did is he solved this problem because he loved us. He solved this problem by sending his son Jesus. Now, you've, I'm, I'm positive you've all heard the name Jesus. If nothing else, I've talked about him a lot this week, right? Jesus was God, is God, fully God, has always existed. Colossians 1 says that the world and all we know is created by him and for him, that all things exist through him and for his glory. Jesus is God. And yet he came to the earth, and then in what we call the incarnation, Jesus was both fully God and fully man at the same time. And he didn't come to earth just like on a sightseeing tour. He didn't come down here just to like take a look around and see all the things that he's made. Jesus came with a very specific purpose. Jesus came to the earth to rescue you and me from spiritual death. In the same way that God rescues Daniel from the lions, or the same way that he rescues Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the flames, Jesus comes to the earth with a very specific intention, and that intention is to redeem his people who are busted. That's you and me. Jesus came to the earth to rescue us. Jesus comes to the earth, the Bible says, and he lives a perfect life. And what that means is that he never once failed to glorify God in the things he thought, or the things he said, or the things he did. He set a perfect example for us of what human life can be at its pinnacle. But because Jesus lived a perfect life, he also was an acceptable substitute for being an atoning sacrifice. That's a lot of weird theological words, but let me tell you what it means. What it means is that because Jesus wasn't a sinner, he could die in our place. Jesus came to the earth and he lived a perfect life, and the Bible teaches that he took our sin upon himself. It's like he took our punishment for us. Isaiah, in an Old Testament prophecy, says that the sins or the iniquity of us all was placed upon him. Jesus came to the earth to take our crimes and to pay for them himself. 
Jesus came to the earth. He lived a perfect life. He took the sins of the world, and he went to the cross and died. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but um, Jesus technically wasn't murdered. And Jesus technically isn't a martyr, not the way we think about martyrs. Martyrs are people who were taken against their will and killed for what they believe. A murdered person is someone who is killed in some sort of surprise or against their will, right? Jesus wasn't murdered, and he isn't a martyr, not technically. Why? Because Jesus came with intention and purpose to die. That's why he came. In fact, Jesus says in the book of John, nobody takes my life from me. Nobody's taking away Jesus' life. He says, I have the power to lay it down and to take it up again. Here's what I want you to understand. Jesus wasn't put on the cross. He wasn't tricked into the cross. It wasn't the Romans who killed him. It wasn't the Jewish people who killed him, the Pharisees, any of those people. Jesus wasn't murdered. He laid down his life. He sacrificed himself. He was a sacrificial lamb. And he died on that cross, not because he earned that or because he deserved that. Jesus died on that cross because your camp speaker deserved that. Newsflash, not just me, but every human being that's ever lived deserved to die. Jesus died on the cross. He shed his blood, and he was buried dead. He wasn't in a coma. He wasn't asleep, right? The Romans at that time were the experts in all the world of making sure their victims were dead. And Jesus is put into that tomb cold and dead. But he didn't stay that way. You probably know this story, right? Three days later, some of Jesus' friends who didn't understand what was happening, even though he told them what he was going to do, they go to his tomb essentially to prepare his body for final rest in the Hebrew tradition. And when they get to the tomb, they're shocked and surprised to find that the stone has been rolled away from in front of the tomb, that Jesus isn't there, that he's risen from the dead. It's what, uh, it's what we celebrate on Easter, right? And I don't know whether you celebrate Easter. If you're a Christian, you probably do. You should. If you're not a Christian, maybe you don't. But as a kid, even, Easter was always a little confusing to me, right? Because you get dressed up, and you go to church, and they give you all these, you know, bunny stuff and eggs and chocolate. And, and as a kid, I was like, what's this day about? And they're like, it's about Jesus. He rose from the dead. He came out of the tomb. We're having a big party, you know? And I'm like, was he riding on a bunny when he came out of there? Because how huge, he was like a full-grown man that had to be a massive rabbit, you know? It never really connected with me. I didn't really understand even what we're celebrating. And I can remember trying to work it out as a kid in my head and thinking like, like, what's the big deal that Jesus rose from the dead, right? Why are we having this big party on Easter? Because he's God, right? If I was God, I'd rise from the dead all the time, you know? Like, I'd get up in the morning and ride my bike into traffic and get killed and rise from the dead. I'd, like, choke on some stuff at lunch and rise from the dead. Like, if I was Jesus and I was God, like, I'd be rising from the dead all the time. My friends would be like, Oh, here comes McWaters. Watch, he's going to rise from the dead again. He's always doing that. Like, that would be my signature move, you know? If I was God and Jesus is, like, why does it matter that he rose from the dead? It doesn't seem like, like that big of a deal for God to do that. And I have learned as I got older, and I want to share with you, in case you're interested, why we celebrate Easter. The reason we celebrate Easter is not because it's necessarily that amazing that God has the power to rise from the dead. The reason why we celebrate Easter as human beings is that when Jesus walks out of that tomb, he proves beyond any question that he has the power to make dead things live. He has the power to make dead things live. Why is that worth throwing a party for? Because you and me are dead in our sin. 
We do not have the power to make dead things live. We do not have the ability to save ourselves. We do not have enough uh, time to do enough good deeds. It would never pay the penalty for our sin. When Jesus walks out of that tomb, the reason all humanity is celebrated every Easter since is that Jesus proves he has the power to extend life to dead things. And Jesus doesn't just walk out of the tomb with resurrected life. He does that. But the Bible goes on to say then that by his grace... By his grace and his mercy, he extends that same resurrection life to his dead and dying people. In fact, in the most famous verse in the Bible, you've probably heard this, John 3.16 says, God loved the world so much that he gave the only son he had, that's Jesus, that whosoever believeth in him won't perish, but instead would have eternal life. If you ever wonder what that verse means, it means that what Jesus did made it so that we don't have to be dead in our sin anymore, that we can be alive just like he is alive. Jesus extends to us, it says in Ephesians 2, by his grace we have been saved. That means it's not something you buy, it's not something you trade for, you don't get resurrection life by going to enough church services or memorizing enough Bible verses or coming to Christian camp or whatever. You can't exchange for it or buy it. It's a gift. Ephesians says, for by grace we've been saved, it's the gift of God, not of works. Otherwise we could brag and boast about it. Jesus gives resurrection life to those who believe. And I've said before to other people, I've said, I kind of wish I could change John 3.16, and that might seem weird to you. But to me, it seems like it'd be a lot easier if John 3.16 said, um, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that anybody who'd ever seen a picture of him wouldn't perish, but instead would have eternal life. Because I could just like sketch a little drawing of Jesus or what I think he looks like, and I could be like, hey, Hume Lake, look up here. Right, and everybody would be made spiritually alive, you know? I wish John 3.16 said, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that anybody who'd ever heard his name wouldn't perish but instead would have eternal life because I could be like, hey, pay attention. Jesus, everybody be saved, right? No more spiritual death. Everybody spiritually alive be so simple, right? But that verse, John 3.16, reads the way it does for a reason, and I don't want you to miss this. It says, whosoever believeth in him, that's the King James, whoever believes in him won't perish, but instead would have eternal life. It has to be believed. Why? Why believe? I'll tell you. I could make you look at my Jesus cartoon. I could trick you into hearing me call out his name. But that wouldn't be something that happened inside of you. That would just be me manipulating things. The reason John 3.16 says that God loved the world so much that he gave his son that whoever believes in him, the reason it says believes is that belief is the one thing nobody else can do for you. The question you have to ask yourself tonight is do you believe that Jesus is the king of the universe? Do you believe that you were dead in your sin? Do you believe that he died in your place and that he rose from the dead, proving that he has the power over life and death? Do you believe that by his grace he can extend that same resurrection life to you? Because if you believe those things, you believe them, not your parents, not your pastors, not your camp speaker, I definitely believe it. It's not doing you any good that I do. I put my faith in Jesus when I was 17 at a Christian camp. There was this, um, I wasn't like really into Christians at the time. And uh, there was this really cute girl and she's like, hey, are you gonna go to church camp? And I was like, no. She goes, oh, I was really hoping you were gonna go. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm gonna go to that church camp, you know? <laughs> I didn't go for the right reasons, you see what I'm saying? But it was at a camp, when I, it was between my junior, junior and senior year, I was 17, it was at camp in Prescott, Arizona. I heard what I'm telling you tonight, it's called the gospel, that just means the good news. I heard the truth that Jesus 
came and died to rescue me from my sin and my, my spiritual death. And I put my faith in Jesus. I believed that. I believed that truth. And according to the scripture, the moment that I believed that Jesus was the son of God, that he'd risen from the dead and that he had the power to extend that life to me, the moment I believed those things, I was made new, spiritually alive. Now, the great thing about spiritual life is someday my body's still going to kick it, right? I hope I don't get eaten by puppets, but who knows, right? Jury's still out on that. Someday my body's still going to die. I'm going to get old or I'll get hit by a truck or whatever, <laughs> And the thing is, you guys, right here standing in front of you, let me tell you, according to what the Bible says and according to what I believe about Jesus, I'm standing in front of you spiritually alive. I wasn't always that way, but I have been that way since I was 17. And the great thing about spiritual life is that when my body stops ticking, I go into eternity fixed in that position, forever and ever, spiritually alive in the presence of God. Something that can never be taken away from me or ever undone. Because it wasn't by my power that that was accomplished. It was by the power of my king that that was accomplished, right? It's by grace that you're saved. There are some of you in the room tonight who've never put your faith in Jesus. And I don't mean you've never gone to church. Some of you have gone to a lot of church. I don't mean that you don't know anything about the Bible. Some of you know a lot of things about the Bible. Some of you know almost nothing. But you might be in the very same camp. It's possible. I grew up in a pastor's home, right? I grew up as a pastor's kid, and I did not have my faith in Jesus until I was 17, right? It's possible that you're here tonight and you've never put your faith in Jesus. And so what I want to do tonight is say, look, while looking at Daniel 6, I can't guarantee you that the next difficulty that comes your way, Jesus will shut the mouths of the lions. I can't guarantee you that when you end up in the fiery furnace, that God will pull you out of that unsinged. But what I can absolutely guarantee you is that long before you were ever born or before your parents were born, Jesus died to rescue you today. Not from the furnace necessarily, and not from the lion's den necessarily, but from sin and death, which is infinitely worse. And all you have to do is put your faith in him. Sometimes you'll hear people say, um, you know, young people, young people today, what you need to do is you need to accept Jesus into your heart. And I, I know what they're trying to say, right? I get the lingo. But that's not what I'm saying to you. And the reason is this. Um, when, when we think about accepting Jesus, sometimes what that feels to me like is... Um, like dodgeball picks, you know? Like Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad and Joseph Smith and all these guys are lined up and they're all like, oh, I really hope Darren picks me to be his God, you know? And I'm like, uh, I'm going with Jesus. And he's like, yeah, you know, nah. That's not what we're talking about. I'm not talking tonight about you deciding to pick Jesus for your team. It isn't, that isn't the right picture. What I'm wanting you to consider is that maybe long before you were even born, Jesus picked you. That maybe he chose you to be his daughter, to be his son, to turn away from the kingdom of self, to turn away from the kingdom of idols, and to turn to the kingdom of God, to immigrate. Remember the message of Jesus we talked about on the first night? Repent for the kingdom of God is available. To turn away from your kingdom and to live in his. If you're here tonight and you've never put your faith in Jesus, my question for you after everything else we've talked about is, will you trust him? Will you surrender your life to Jesus who chose you before you existed and died so that you could have resurrection life? 
I'd love to have you all bow your heads and close your eyes. And I'm, uh, I'm not asking you to bow your heads and close your eyes because I want you to sleep for sure. And I definitely don't want you to pray yet. I just want you to get alone. And I know that's weird. In a big room like this with a thousand people sitting here, uh, there's all kinds of distractions. Distracting by the people sitting next to you and the other things you're going to do later and whatever. I, just for a second, I want you to get alone in a room full of people. And the best way to do that is to close your eyes and bow your head. So here's what, I'm, here's what I want you to do. In that quiet place right now, your head's bowed, your eyes are closed in that quiet place where it's just you and your heart and God, I want you to ask yourself the most important question a woman or a man ever asked themselves, and it's this. Have I put my faith in Jesus to rescue me from sin and death? And it's a binary question. It's a one or a zero. It's a yes or a no. I'm not asking you if you go to church regularly. I'm not asking if you have parents that are pastors and missionaries because that's largely irrelevant. What I'm asking you is have you put your faith in Jesus to save you from sin and death. And I remember as a 17-year-old sitting in a room not super unlike this one and realizing that even though I'd been around church most of my life, I had never trusted in Christ to save me. If you're here tonight and you look into the depths of your soul and you recognize that you've never put your faith in Jesus, I know exactly what that feels like and I would love, love, love to be able to pray for you. I, I won't know your name, but I can pray for your face. And so with everybody's head bowed and everybody's eyes closed, if you're here and you just be honest with me for a second and say, hey, Darren, I've never put my faith in Jesus, but I want to do that. I wonder if you just look up here at me. If that's you, just as soon as you catch my eye, you can look back down, but I want to look you in the eyes for a second, okay? Is that cool? So if that's you, I've never put my faith in Jesus, but I want to do that. And just look up here at me so I can pray for your face in a moment. Thanks. And I appreciate you trusting me with that. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. And I'm just going to kind of make my way through. So it'll take a second. Thank you. Thanks. I appreciate your honesty and your trust. Thank you. The vulnerability of that is risky, I know. Thanks. But I appreciate it. And I remember it. Thanks. Hey, Darren, I've never put my faith in Jesus, but I want to do that. Who else? You here? Thank you. Thanks, dude. And I'm just going to look into your eyes. God, you know the names of these. Thanks. You know the names of these men and women. You know their stories. Bless them for their courage. We thank you for the way we see you drawing them. How about over here in the back? Thanks. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, just catch my eye. I can look back down. Thanks, dude. Thanks. I'm going to make my way over here, and then I'm going to look up there at the balcony. Thanks. If you want to give me a smile, that's kind of nice, too. Thanks. 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 Thank you, dude. Thanks. God, you know their names. Thanks. Thanks, dude. Who else? In the back, thanks. Thanks. Thanks, dude. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. How about up top? All the way on the top. Thanks. I'm old, but I'm not that old. I can see you. Thanks. Say, I've never put my faith in Jesus, but I want to do that. Thank you for being honest with me. Thank you. Thanks for trusting me with that. Thanks right here. I see you guys. Thank you. Along here. Thank you. Thanks. I'm looking here. How about over here? Yeah. Thanks. Hey, that's helpful. If you're wondering if I can see you, then give me a little wave. That's great. Oh, all the way in the corner. Thanks. Very cool. All the way in the back. Yep. Back row. Praise God. 
Who else? Okay, throughout the room, if you are looking at me and I haven't seen you yet, would you do that same thing? Would you just give me a wave? I want to look your way and pray for you. Thanks, right in front of me. Thanks. Thanks, dude. Thanks. Thank you. I see you. Thanks. I don't have any idea how many of you that is, and it doesn't even matter. The number isn't what's important, but here's what I want you to recognize. The Spirit of God is moving in this place. You know the Bible says that you can't acknowledge your need for Jesus unless the Spirit of God draws you to him. What that means is that if you just looked up here at me, the God of the universe is drawing you to Christ. I'd like to have all of you look up here at me, and I'm just going to give you a couple closing things. Here, here's what they are. In a minute, we're going to worship God together. The band's going to lead us. We're going to worship God together. And then when that's done, we're going we're to have a time of response right here in this room. There's going to be a, a group of you who will be dismissed in a discipline of silence, and that group is the, the group of people who've already put their faith in Christ or the group who's not interested in putting their faith in Christ, right? You'll be dismissed in a few minutes, and you can go and kind of just hang out, and then everything will sort of get going in a little while. But for those of you who looked up here at me, what I'd love for you to do is just stay right in your seat in that moment, right? Your leaders are going to stay behind. Some of the leaders and counselors from Hume Lake are going to stay behind, and we're going to turn this room into a place where we can do some business with God, right? Like a quiet place. After we sing this song, if you're looking at me, or let me say this too, if you didn't look up here at me, but you can feel the Spirit of God drawing you to put your faith in Christ, stay in your seat, right? The people that should go are the ones who are like, I'm already a follower of Jesus, or the people who are like, not interested, no thanks. But if you have questions, if you want to ask some questions, have a conversation, then in that moment of silence, I'm just going to ask you to stay right here. Does that make sense? Let me say one last thing. If you're here tonight and you're thinking like, maybe I want to follow Jesus, but I'm not totally sure... I want to give you a little bit of grace and peace. I think sometimes at a camp like this, you can feel like, this is my chance, right? And if I miss it, if I don't put my faith in Jesus tonight, well, I'm going to hell, right? Um, don't freak out. You don't have to put your faith in Jesus in this room tonight, but you do have to put your faith in Jesus. I'd love it if you'd stay behind and talk with your leaders. I can't think of something that's more important to me than that you stay behind and talk to your leaders about this and put your faith in Christ. But if you're at a place where you're not ready for that, I also don't want you to leave here with guilt or shame or beating yourself up or feeling like somehow you're not good enough or whatever. Listen, God knows your name. He created you. He died for you. He loves you and needs you, right? Wants you. So don't beat yourself up. But do think with intentionality about whether or not tonight would be a night to even sort of lean into those questions with your leaders, okay? So here's what we're going to do. Let's worship Jesus together. And then we're going to turn this room into a place for quiet reflection and response together in conversation. All right? Let's, let's praise him together.